from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. This is April 1st, 2020. The COVID-19 virus is sweeping the world. The leaders of the U.S. Coronavirus Task Force say as many or more as 240,000 people could die from this virus. There are so many moving parts to this situation that are changing rapidly. How is the virus spread? Is it coughing or sneezing? Or does it spread simply from breathing? How long does it take to show symptoms? How well prepared is the U.S. to deal with something like this? What would it take to get prepared for a pandemic like this? On this episode, we'll talk with Beth Cameron, Ph.D., Vice President of Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She's the former Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodefense on the White House National Security Council staff. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The U.S. has a big problem. As I've mentioned, coronavirus, COVID-19, is sweeping the world. There are more than 200,000 cases in the U.S. But wait, experts are now saying more than 240,000 people could die meaning there could be as many as or more a million cases in the U.S. So far, more than 4,500 people have died. There are very few answers to this problem. The way that countries and governments typically deal with planning for the possibility of outbreaks like this is to have an organization that's a part of the security apparatus that studies it, that plans things, that prepares all of the pieces, places, and people that need to be used to deal with it. The U.S. used to have an organization like this. It was a part of the White House National Security Council staff. Dr. Beth Cameron, who's vice president of Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, was the senior director of that group. And she joins us now to answer some questions questions that a lot of people are asking. You have a lot of experience uh, in this area, and the first thing off the bat I would like to ask you is what happened to that organization that you were with at the White House? There have been reports and stories about the fact that it was disbanded or dissolved or didn't doesn't exist or was folded into some other organization. What happened to that organization? Does it exist and what's the status of it? 
So the Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense on the National Security Council staff was dissolved in May of 2018. And by dissolved, what I mean is that the people who worked in the office were folded into another part of the National Security Council staff. The reason I think that's important is because it means that there is no longer a specific directorate on the National Security Council staff whose only job it is to handle pandemic threats and who has a, a senior director at the head of the organization whose only job it is to handle pandemic and biological threats. So the organization uh, that exists today is one that White Houses um, are able to make their own decisions about how to organize. Unfortunately, what it means is that the senior director who heads the new organization focused on health security and biodefense also has a lot of other things on his or her plate, which include non-proliferation, nuclear security, North Korea, and other national security related issues in addition to pandemic threats. Coming out of the Ebola epidemic in 2014, we really felt that a major lesson learned uh, that we hoped that we would learn is that we needed to have a full-time staff and office as well as a full-time higher level response coordinator who were focused on this issue day in and day out. All right. So we are in this situation now with COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, and this organization doesn't exist in the format that it did. And I am very interested in your view on what if. And I don't say that just to waste time. Um, This is a very serious situation that people and the world is in, specifically the U.S., because we're facing a very grave challenge here. Not that it's Uh, Not that any other country isn't, but um, I'm just wondering, had this organization been in place, what could it have done? I think it's a really important question to think about uh, which pieces of this response could or should have been improved. I think it's also important to recognize that we are where we are and we need a strong national response now. Um, looking looking backwards, the organization that I had the privilege of standing up and, and running was responsible for asking hard questions, not only of our leaders in the White House, but also of the U.S. government departments and agencies whose day-to-day jobs it, it actually is to prevent, detect, and respond to biological threats. And so in January, our office would have been asking those really hard questions. We would have been going through the playbook that we produced coming out of the Ebola epidemic, and we would have been asking things like, is the United States prepared? What does our hospital capacity look like? Um, when testing started coming uh, online and it was being discussed, I think and hope we would have been talking about whether there was a backup plan. It's really hard to know what any given administration or group would have done in the moment. And certainly there were also um, challenges with other pandemics and outbreaks, including during our Ebola response, um, recognizing how challenging and serious that outbreak would be because of where it happened in the world and how unprepared West Africa was for an Ebola epidemic of that nature. But I do think that it definitely would have been extraordinarily helpful in pushing key questions um, to those decision makers that didn't have time to be asking them themselves. And our job was really to anticipate tough challenges. So I think that the directorate would have made a difference in those three early and critical weeks. I also think that having the process in place 
that was put together um, and maintained into the Trump administration of having a group of individuals focused on biological threats meeting regularly about domestic preparedness and global preparedness, that that glue, that cement that was being developed between departments and agencies at all levels, at working level, at mid-level, and at high levels, uh, that kind of discussion, I hope, is still happening now. Um, and it's really, really important to not just have senior level meetings, but to have meetings that involve everyone involved in the response so that problems can be surfaced quickly and resolved rapidly. And so they don't sit around and wait. We don't have time to wait in a situation like this. So we are where we are. How are we doing as a country? I think we have some challenges with our response. I'll start with some of the good news. I think that the good news uh, lately this week has been the recognition uh, by the White House and, and by uh, many of the states in our country that we really are going to be in this situation with social distancing for some time, for at least several weeks and probably longer. And I think that kind of clarity to the American people about what's needed is really, really important right now. Because one of the most important things that we can do with our response is have a truly national approach. What I mean by that is that there are currently many states that are more affected. And of course, we're hearing a lot in the news about this terrible situation in New York City, obviously Washington State, where the first case um, arrived in the U.S., and of course in California, where they've been in shelter in place um, for longer than, than most of the rest of the country. But there are now many other states that are facing challenges. We're seeing reports about Louisiana and Michigan and other parts of the country. And when you look at the map, there are hot spots everywhere uh, now. There are cases everywhere now. And so what that means is that every state really, um, given our connectivity, given the way that our country works, given the limited supplies of personal protective equipment, healthcare workers, and other needed uh, goods and services, we really need to understand the demand from the states, the timeline for those needs, and then have a very coordinated approach to ensuring to the best of our ability that every state has what it needs to be able to respond. And in addition to the states, also, of course, tribes and territories, given that they are critically important and, and unlikely to have as many resources as some of the states in our country that have more hospital capacities. So I think that right now, one thing that could happen that would be really, really useful is to have a really well understood, coordinated um, list of demands coming from all governors uh, in our country and for FEMA and others in charge of the response to be working seamlessly with those governors as a group. So I'd, I'd really like to see that. I'd also like to see a more um, institutionalized use of the Defense Production Act and an understanding of the goods and services that we don't have now, and also an anticipation of what we're going to run out of in the coming weeks and months so that we can, to the best of our ability, be able to prepare uh, for those shortages as early as possible. So I think that there is light at the end of the tunnel if we can get massive testing, rapid testing underway for those that have had the disease and those that might have it now, we'll have a much better understanding of this outbreak as a number of outbreaks across the country. And we'll be able to eventually isolate individual patients that have the disease and be able eventually to send the rest of the country back to work. So I have hope, uh, but I think that we have a long way to go. You mentioned when you were talking about 
how we were doing, that the governors and everybody, all of the stakeholders in this may need to put together a list. Uh, and there might be a list of things that are needed. So what what are the key things on that list? So the most important things on the list of what governors and states could put together in terms of what they need are supplies. So that includes personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, gowns, many of the things that have been highlighted in the news as shortage items. It also includes medical equipment, ventilators, which we certainly don't have enough of. And now, of course, the Defense Production Act has been implemented to make more, but that will take some time. And so understanding who needs ventilators and when, uh, we may be able to develop a more coordinated approach to sharing that life-saving equipment across the country um, over the next couple of weeks and months. Also, really important to understand workers. So there are a number of, uh, med- there is already in existence a medical reserve, reserve corps that it would be great to um, use to its full fullest capacity. And also there are some ideas floating out there about how to more effectively use volunteers, including medical students and others that could be useful in helping with testing, in helping um, with things like disinfecting um, ambulances um, and all of the the um, really important duties that need to be done uh, with personal protective equipment. There is an idea that AmeriCorps, for example, could be activated for some of these volunteers, and it would be great to see some of those ideas formalized and more centralized between the states. So those are examples. And then I think one of the most critical ways in which we need to see a really coordinated approach right now is coordinated discussions amongst the states about social distancing measures Personally, I think that a national shelter in place for a specific period of time, for example, two weeks, would be an effective uh, approach to having um, basically a, everyone uh, ceasing and social, you know, social distancing and ceasing um, non-essential activities at the same time so that we don't have as much of a patchwork across the country. And then using that time to bolster hospital capacity everywhere and working on getting testing capability to the point where we would be able to test everyone with symptoms and have a much more widespread approach to understand where the cases are, how to isolate them quickly, and eventually how to bring the curve down. One of the things that's most important on, a, on any day, not just a, a situation like this where the whole world is desperate to know what's going on, is information about what's happening around the world. But with everyone either uh, restricted or in many, many places, either restricted to their homes because of um, stay home orders or because of uh, quarantines, et cetera. Uh, there's, there, there, there seems to me as a layman looking at this, there may be a significant or maybe several or many significant blind spots in collecting information about this because we know for a fact that Russia has reported a very low number of cases. North Korea says it has no cases. There are questions about whether China is telling the truth about how many cases it has. Can you talk a bit about what kind of information we're getting and is it is it enough? I don't think that there is enough information and a globalized uh, response, for lack of a better way to to talk about it. Um, We need a national response, as we were just discussing earlier, but we also need a global response. I think the World Health Organization is stepping up 
But right now, without a better understanding of who has been infected uh, with the disease, how many people, not specifically who, but how many people across the world, it's going to be really hard to get a handle on when we can restart some of the critical um, things that have to be restarted to rebuild our economy and our international security, including airline routes, including trade routes. Um, so without knowing um, how many cases we're seeing in places around the world, Africa, Russia, China, the United States, uh, Europe, um, we, we have a, a, a big challenge and a blind spot, as you said, I think one of the things that this really shines a light on is the lack of global biosurveillance capability. And what I mean by this is a lack of really a common operating picture for the world, not just for specific countries or states, but for the world on where disease uh, outbreaks are happening, how many cases there are. WHO has been trying to build this network, and I think that they're doing a much better job and have more support, uh, which of course they need to do that. But I'm in favor of seeing a platform, um, an informational platform that um, brings together the best and brightest talent from all over the world in information technology and epidemiology to start building a better way to collect information about disease cases um, so that when we're in situations like we are with COVID-19, we have uh, a common view of where cases are and how to handle them and build uh, build a network for preventing, detecting, and responding to disease threats that's more effective than the one that we have. Dr. Cameron, from your perspective and from your expertise, what are the components that are necessary for this global biosurveillance network? So to have an effective global biosurveillance network, you need to have uh, information about cases. And what that means is you have to have strong laboratory capability around the world. You need to have um, a capacity for reporting to happen and a transparent reporting structure from those laboratories and ministries all over the world to an informational platform that is gathering that information. The World Health Organization does gather this information, but there are lots of other tools available that could be brought to bear um, on developing a common biosurveillance architecture. For example, there are social media platforms, there are um, informational and informal networks that are gathering information about flu people that have flu symptoms or hotspots where we're seeing an increase in cases of symptoms with flu-like flu illness, which could tell you if flu is circulating or if something like flu, a respiratory disease like this one, for example, is circulating. There are also lots of um, applications that are being used locally and regionally uh, by countries around the world finding a way to bring all of that information together and create, for lack of a, a, a better analogy, a weather map, a common weather map that could tell us uh, when disease outbreaks are occurring and where on a much more routine basis. I think that would be an incredibly useful uh, tool for the world to have. That's a great, brilliant explanation of that, because it gives me, and I guess our, our listeners will get this as well, a way to visualize what's necessary, a weather map about weather map. Uh, basically um, you know, how these uh, possible infectious diseases could be spreading where they are. So people have to play a, a, a serious role in that. And I would imagine, you know, human and human intelligence, as it's called in the intelligence world, but humans would play a significant role in that. And we don't have that right now with all of this going on. There's a lot of fear uh, and a lot of 
again, blind spots uh, on this. Am I correct in that? You are. And I think even in the United States right now, um, we have a few um, a few challenges. One is just capability to be able to develop diagnostic tests quickly. Um, as we saw in our own country, CDC is really well equipped to develop diagnostic tests. And we struggled uh, in this case to develop one as quickly as we needed it, because even um, in any outbreak, but certainly in a pandemic, um, a week or two weeks um, really do cost a significant amount of time. So first, being able to develop diagnostic platforms quickly. Second, being able to develop diagnostic platforms like the ones that are starting to be released now in our own country that can um, diagnose disease in a matter of hours um, or even point of care diagnostics that diagnose disease in a way that pregnancy tests work very quickly and effectively so that you know really fast who has the disease and who doesn't so that those people can make decisions that are really important like isolating themselves so that they don't infect other people or if they are high risk, elderly people with underlying medical conditions, they can be seen and treated first um, and, and in that way um, prevent some of the downstream complications that may arise and, and put them in the intensive care unit. So platforms and technologies um, that can be developed on a, a much more rapid basis for quick point of care diagnostics. I think that is a huge lesson from this outbreak and one that many of my expert friends have been talking about for years as a, a large challenge um, that we would face with a pandemic and we definitely did face it. We also need to have um, information sharing networks that allow for countries and ministries to share information that doesn't include personal information, but does include enough information so that everyone has a sense of where disease outbreaks are circulating. That though, of course, involves trust, sharing and trust between countries. Um, one of the challenges I see right now in this outbreak from a national and international security perspective is that there hasn't even been a UN Security Council resolution yet on COVID-19. And I think that's an incredibly um, short-sighted uh, short um, approach to not have a UN Security Council resolution. And it's not for lack of, of trying my understanding is that the P5 just haven't been able to agree. I think developing trust among partner nations that don't always agree on, on many things during a pandemic to be able to agree that we will have information sharing that is transparent for the good of the world, it's a tall order, but it's something that has to happen in order for us to come out of this pandemic and to be prepared for the next one. Something that you mentioned in the course of your remarks, you're talking about learning uh, information about what was going on with people, location data or location information. And I've heard a lot about that in the recent weeks uh, and days. Some countries overseas are using it. Um, what do you think about the value of using location data to assist in this global biosurveillance network that you think is necessary? I think it's really important to be able to, to access those networks. And there's been some good work um, that has been done in conjunction with, um, for example, phone companies working with the World Economic Forum to find ways to use that information um, in a de-identified manner, but that can help to find uh, where outbreaks are actually occurring. And so that includes um, another partnership that I think is incredibly important that we're seeing um, as an important piece 
of the COVID-19 response, which is an effective partnership network with the private sector, where the private sector is able to provide information and access to important networks of data, like cell phone information, but to do it in a way that respects privacy um, for, for individual citizens. And I think that we're getting to a point, my understanding, I'm not an information technology expert, uh, but we're getting to a point where we should be able to have information sharing and an architecture like the one I'm proposing, uh, but it will require a partnership with the public and private sector that's really on an unprecedented scale. You know, um, one of the things that's also important is, you know, there are players in the world or, or countries and leaders and stakeholders in the world that aren't going to go along with this idea that you have just because of their own politics and just because of their own geopolitical pragmatism. And in some cases, there is a bit of skullduggery that goes on with this kind of recalcitrance. You know, in a country like North Korea, where they have a very long border with China, um, they're, they're, you know, they're also, um, uh, they have a very poor health care system. They say they don't have any cases there. And there is, in my mind, to my thinking, a very serious concern about how dangerous that is to the rest of the world, that cases may be there, may be growing, the disease or the virus may be festering there, and it could get out and in, in back to China, and there's another wave there or to some other place. So what's your view on how to deal with situations like that, or is there a way to deal with that? I think the best way to deal with hotspots of disease in countries that are not participating in the global uh, architecture the way that most countries are participating or at least partially participating is to have super strong surveillance and detection for disease um, in the countries that flank uh, those countries. And so I think you, you highlighted North Korea. I think that just absolutely foot stomps the need for strong disease surveillance capability in China and strong disease surveillance capability in South Korea. And I think that for the U.S. government, as we're looking at our partnerships with the world and our interest in a stable um, situation on the Korean Peninsula, we should be partnering on a much more um, frequent basis uh, with China on disease surveillance work, um, regardless of how our geopolitical conversations are going on other issues. We should absolutely have CDC personnel embedded with China CDC, as we have had in the past. We should be working with them on pandemic exercises on a regular basis. And we should continue our strong cooperation with South Korea, uh, where we have you know, many troops stationed um, in US Forces Korea, where we're working hand in glove with the government of Korea um, on uh, defense and national security issues and we should continue and build our collaboration with them on disease surveillance and response. So that applies for sure with North Korea, but it also applies in other parts of the world where it's so important that we have partnerships in regions where there are um, lack, where there are unstable, uh, unstable situations or partners that are, as you said, recalcitrant. Okay, um, wrapping it up here. What have we learned? And how can we benefit from that knowledge moving forward? I think we've learned that a pandemic in our lifetime is possible. 
And I say that um, not to to be flip about it, but I think one of the big questions for those of us that work in an area focused on prevention, where our work is measured in something that doesn't happen, one of the big challenges with that kind of work is convincing people that something can happen. And it's extraordinarily unfortunate that it takes a pandemic like this one to show that possibility But I do think that the likelihood of pandemics like this one is increasing as our world is increasingly interconnected, as we see increasing possibilities for accidental or deliberate use, as we see humans living closer to animals and the the possibility for zoonotic diseases to arise more frequently. All of those things lead us to a situation where this type of pandemic is going to happen again. And we we knew it would, and we knew that we know that it will. And so I think, number one, we've learned it can and will happen. And if we're not prepared for it, the scale of, of mortality and morbidity is going to be a toll that is just too high, to, too high of a price to bear, not to mention the downstream effects on the global economy and peace and stability for our world. So I think we need to invest much more significantly in pandemic preparedness, the way that we invest in military preparedness, the way that we invest in counterterrorism, pandemic preparedness needs to be near the top of the list. And up until this point, it was on everyone's top 10 list, but it wasn't at anyone's top of the list. And I think that absolutely needs to change. Um, I also think that what it's taught us is that the United States is not infallible to a disease threat like this one, that we really do need to act more quickly. We need to anticipate problems before they arise. And what that means um, also practically is that we need to find a way to fight a pandemic that is fundamentally different from the way that we fight natural disasters like hurricanes, for example. We need to have an all 50 state approach at the same time. And that means much more connectivity in our response between the states working closely with the federal government. So I I hope very much that that will be a lesson that we learn in the coming days and weeks that will stay with us for a long period of time. The final thing that I hope that we learn from this is the importance of being part of a global response and a global conversation about health security with all of our partners. This is a situation that affects every part of the world, and the U.S. is only safe and secure if we are at the forefront, I believe, in helping to lead the global response. We can't receive goods and services and assistance if we're not providing goods and services and assistance. And we're going to learn from partners who have been able, um, who have been able to develop new tools in this pandemic that we are going to need to adopt in our own country. So we need to be not only part of that response, we really need to be leading it. Last thing, is there anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? No, I think I covered it. That's a great last question, though, JJ. If, if you want me to say something, I'm happy to come up with something. No, but it's okay. No. Uh, I, this is a, a normal thing. I always ask my guests if they have something great. they want to add. So you don't have to come up with anything. I do have something that just struck me as I was, was listening to you. Um, you know, this is the second pandemic we've had in less than 10 years. Um, yeah. Because uh, there was uh, the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. Does yep. the fact that we're having a second pandemic in less than 10 years say anything to you? I know that's not that's not unprecedented because you know in in the in the night in the late 50s there was the H2N2 situation and H3N2 in the late 60s. So it's not unusual to have a 10 year gap with another 
pandemic, but I'm just wondering at this stage in our development to have a pandemic just a little bit more than 10 years after another, does that say anything to you? What it says to me is that we need to be prepared for a pandemic at any time. And it also says to me that we are dealing with an increasingly interconnected world where you can get from point A to point B around the world in a matter of you know a day or a couple of days. And I think that is the reality um, that we're facing. And when you add that to increasing technologies that both help us prepare for pandemics, but also allow for nefarious actors to cause a pandemic, um, I think we're dealing with a world where we need to be prepared for all manner of biological threats, and we need to be able to stop them effectively at the source before they spread. Dr. Beth Cameron, Vice President of Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. She previously served as the Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodefense on the White House National Security Council staff. Thank you very much for taking time to do this. I know you're very busy right now, and this is a very important time for people like you who have the expertise that you have. And so I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of people pulling at you. So thank you for taking time to talk to Target USA. Thank you so much, JJ. I really enjoyed it. Greatly appreciated the conversation. That's it for this episode. Coming up in our next episode. I don't think that the, the world after coronavirus is going to be the same. Life after COVID-19. Counterinsurgency expert and military strategist David Kilcullen, who served in the Australian Army and with the U.S. Army, says some unlikely things may be on the horizon. I also think we shouldn't discount the possibility. I think it's a low, low possibility, um, but the real possibility that there might be a conventional conflict arising out of this. And the U.S. supply chain. It's going to have to be changed. One of the things that this crisis has highlighted is that more than 90% of active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into U.S. Uh, medical supplies are sourced from China, uh, along with all the, the PPE that we, the personal protective equipment that we found ourselves short of in this crisis. That's coming up in our next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter, if you will. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast, at TUSA Podcast. And if you're interested in more information about national security, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can find it at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From the network that brought you the Cold Case Files podcast comes I Survived. The classic stories you know, with new interviews, updating each woman's story with everything that happens after survival. I survived because I convinced him that I was a person. I survived because I was a smarter person than my assailant. I survived because I, be I believe God saved me. Surviving is just the beginning of their story. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.